Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Many of us have seen firsthand the impacts weather can have on our daily lives. And today we're going to focus on the dangers associated with heat and thunderstorms. Heat related illnesses are often underrated and sadly, this can lead to many trips to the emergency room or worse. Today's guest, Dr. Andrew Grunstein of the University of Georgia has been focusing on one particular aspect of the heat, how it impacts athletes and children in hot cars. These situations can lead to dozens of deaths each year. So we're going to discuss the meteorological and even some of the psychological factors at play in these events. Finally, we'll discuss the impacts of thunderstorms on asthma, an idea which may be counterintuitive to many of you, but it's real. Andy, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, and I said Andy, folks, I want to properly acknowledge him as Dr. Andy Grunstein, but Andy and our colleagues, we've known each other for almost 15, 16 years now. We're in the same department at the University of Georgia, and I'm always happy to be able to talk to one of my own colleagues because even uh, in in our program at the University of Georgia in the Department of Geography and the Atmospheric Sciences Program, some world-class research going on. Let me highlight some of Andy's background before we get started. He's a professor, a full professor in the Geography Department at the University of Georgia since 19. Ninety-nine, and he's also affiliated as a faculty with our atmospheric sciences program. His PhD is from the University of Delaware, actually in climatology, and I want to talk about that later. Has a master's degree in geography from Delaware and a bachelor's degree from the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, as we all know it, in geography, ecosystems, and political science. So, Andy, there's a question I always ask every Weather Geeks guest just right out, out of the top. How did you get interested in weather or climate? <laughs> well, so you mentioned that as an undergraduate, one of my degrees was in geography ecosystems. And I've always been really interested in how people and the environment interact together. And that was actually kind of kind of the core of that major. Um, and one of my professors uh, was focused on climatology, I actually went to the University of Delaware, and that kind of focused me into the role that weather and climate might play on, on people's you know, health and, and, and just how it affects our everyday lives. So you weren't one of these people, and we often hear this with our guests, that sort of had some experience as a kid. No, it, it's, it, see, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, which you know, some you know, meteorologists might think doesn't really have weather. They, every day it's you know, 70 and beautiful. Um, so no, I, I, I didn't grow up with these types of disasters, you know, hurricanes or tornadoes. Um, our weather hazards were you know, earthquakes and fires and mudslides. So I was looking at maybe more broadly, it's it sort of like natural hazards and, 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 and people's health and safety. Yeah, no, I think you have a real broad background that I've grown to know. You've been at UGA, the University of Georgia, for 21 years in the Department of Geography. Um, over the years, and I mean, we're going to focus a lot on your work. You've kind of over the last, I'd say, oh, I don't know, decade or more, been really been a, a key scientist in weather, climate, and health. We're going to focus on on the podcast, but over the years at the University of Georgia, tell us about 
the geography department, the atmospheric sciences program, and for what you've been up to before you really sort of got into sort of the health aspects of your research? Yeah, so it's really interesting. And I, I tell a lot of my students that sometimes you just have to be um, you know, look around and pivot and change your interests. Sometimes my my dissertation was on snow in the upper Midwest, and you know, which definitely had a human component where you know water resources affected people. Um, but you know, as I got into my career at UGA, uh, I pivoted a little bit because I've always been really interested in, in you know people and how weather and climate affects people. And one of our, our colleagues in the department who's retired, Vern Muntemeyer came to me and, and brought this story about, and maybe we'll talk about this a little, a little bit later, about a child that died in a hot... And from that point, and I remember that sort of that, that point where my career kind of changed trajectories a little bit, we, I started looking at what the conditions were like in the car, and then from that, expanding into looking at you know, more policy-type things. Um, in fact, a lot of the work that I do is tied to my role as a teacher too, that it came out of a lot of the courses that I taught and the interesting questions that students would raise. Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Andy Grunstein from the University of Georgia. We're going to be talking a lot about weather and the human condition. And, you know, it's something that I think catches a lot of people off guard. If you look at some of the weather, National Weather Service statistics on how people die from weather every year in the United States, I think people would be surprised to find that heat is number one on that list. And you've been doing research, you know, on various ways that heat impacts the human body. I want to start with the work that you've done on heat in cars, because I think we hear these stories every year. And we're in this time of year right now, summertime, where people leave their kids in their cars or their pets or even their cell phones. But I want to focus on kids for a moment, because that tends to be the most common. And they, unfortunately, we have cases where life is lost. So tell us a little bit about some of the landmark work that you've done. And by the way, before we do that, I, I know you uh, you support me in this, but I want to give a shout out to Dr. I mean to Jan Knoll, who is also a colleague of both of ours, who has done a, done, done a lot of work in this area as well. But tell us what you found over the years in your research. Yeah. So and yeah, and I was going to mention Jan as well. Um, you know, Jan's been collecting uh, this data set of all of the children that have died in hot cars. And you know, we've already had five children this year die. Um, on average, about 39 children a year die in hot cars. Um, in recent years, it's actually been even worse. Uh, the last two years, it's been over 50. Um, so the idea is, is people you know, will leave their kids in hot cars, and there's different reasons for that. Um, but a car works like a greenhouse. And when the sunlight comes in, it heats up the interior, and it can heat the car up 40, 50 degrees within an hour and especially on a already hot day that could be deadly for a child yeah and, and I think we all have that experience after you know stepping into our cars after perhaps shopping at the mall or in the grocery store and you get back in these really hot cars and then you imagine I, I don't I, and can you because I don't think people realize how hot it actually gets in these cars and, and over a relatively short period of short period of time. Can you can you just give people some numbers with, just so that they know why there's such a danger? Oh sure. I, I mean I, I stuck I, I parked in front of uh, the geography department at the University of Georgia when I was testing how hot cars can get and I put a temperature sensor in there and it got up to about 170 degrees. Wow. And, which is 
crazy. And I think, you know, most people who you know, live in hot areas, you know, you get in your car after leaving it in the sun and you realize how hot it's in there. And you could imagine if a child's in there for some length of time and, you know, these cars can heat up really rapidly a lot, you know, almost two thirds of the heating occurs, you know, within 20, 30 minutes. So one of the modeling studies I've done actually with one of my colleagues uh, uh, at University of Georgia, we, we, we were looking at what temperature, you know, would kind of the human body get so hot, it just couldn't cool itself off anymore. And it was about 120 degrees. So you can see when it gets up to about 170, it's just, it's overwhelming. And you can see why it's so deadly. Yeah, and, and if I recall, didn't you or you in concert with some colleagues develop some type of scale to help people understand how much warming is taking place? Yeah, so we collected data in, in my car and we came up with a, a table that would give you a, at least a sense how hot it would get over different time increments to show people how quickly cars can heat up and how dangerous it can be. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a real issue. And by the way, even though we're talking with Dr. Grunstein about uh, kids who die in cars, uh, again, same same rationale for pets and even even your cell phones. You know, those things can heat up really uh, rapidly as uh, well. Um, I know you worked with uh, a, a doc, now Dr. Castle Williams on his master's thesis work, and that that was an interesting sort of spinoff, I guess, of some of the work that you've done. Can you talk about what you and Castle uh, that research and what it was up to related to hot hot car, uh, cars and children? Oh, sure. One of the one of the difficult things about trying to prevent these deaths in cars is that. There's a couple different ways these things happen. For half the cases are when people simply forget their kids in the car. And then the other cases are when a child might go outside and they're playing and they get themselves locked in the car. And then also there can be people that intentionally leave their kids in the car. So there's a couple different scenarios. And what Castle was looking at was what he interviewed a bunch of people and wanted to see kind of what their, their thoughts about this. And what he found is that people find this really terrifying and, and a terrible thing, but most people don't think it could happen to them. And I think that's really important for the public health messaging because the perception is that it's these bad parents that intentionally try to leave their kids in the car. Um, There's a case in Georgia where a father um, intentionally left his child in the car um, who died. Um, so there's this perception that it's bad people that do this. And in reality, if you look at the cases, you know, especially the data set that Jan has compiled, a lot of the people simply forget they're not bad people. They just, you know, terrible accident and their child dies. And these people come from all walks of life, um, all different types of occupations. Um, you know, it could be fathers and mothers and grandparents and childcare workers so I think that's the tricky thing is people have it stuck in their head that it's, it's this bad person, but it can happen to anyone. In fact, there's a, 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 a psychologist that has been looking at this called forgotten baby syndrome, where people simply forget. And the idea here is that, you know, sometimes I don't know if you've you know, driven home from work and you needed to stop the store and pick something up, but you went in autopilot and went straight home. Um, that's kind of what happens. A lot of times it might be that like, let's say the, one parent normally drives their child to daycare and they switch up the routine. So the other parent goes on autopilot with the child in the backseat who might be sleeping, goes straight to work, goes into work, and the child's left in a hot car all day. 
Um, that's the idea of the forgotten baby syndrome. They just, they literally forgot. And these cases are really tragic and trying to figure out how do you prevent these things from happening um, is one of the things I'm really interested in. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. And I'm talking today with my University of Georgia colleague, Dr. Andy Grunstein. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from UGA. And we're talking about Andy's work. Uh, it, it spans various uh, sort of areas within the sort of broader topic of climate, weather, and health. And we've been talking about children being left in hot cars. And I want to sort of put a bow on that discussion and move on to another topic. But before we do, for, to your knowledge, Andy, are there things being done by automakers or others to help with alerting, given what you just talked about with the forgotten baby syndrome? syndrome? I know people have come up with a bunch of types of warning systems they can install in vehicles, but this hasn't been put into widespread practice. Um, so right now, no, there, there's not. And so there's a lot of techniques that you know the public health community recommends, for instance, you know, leaving a purse or a briefcase or a cell phone in the back seat so you remember to turn back and, and look for your kid. And there's a bunch of different slogans about you know looking before you leave the car but no um, widespread technology that's being used yet. Yeah, hopefully, um, you know, through public outreach like this and others, we can just continue to elevate uh, the awareness of this. And as you noted, though, I mean, we, we've all been in situations where we just get an autopilot in our minds and we forget things. And so um, hopefully we can just continue to raise awareness. I want to now shift to some of Dr. Grunstein's work. Uh, on health, heat, and athletes, and uh, athletic performance, and, and death. Uh, Andy works very closely with uh, an organization called the Corey Stringer Institute, and if you aren't familiar with the Corey Stringer, um, perhaps Andy can give us a little one-on-one on who he is, because he it was an NFL player who lost his life, and I believe there was a heat-related circumstances surrounding that, and just as an FYI, Andy was uh, recently in NFL headquarters, I believe, in New York for his uh, career research in this topic. So Andy's certainly considered one of the leaders in this field. So Andy, can you just kind of tell the Weather Geeks listeners a little bit about who Corey Stringer is and why you got into this line of research? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, Corey Stringer was a Minnesota Viking football player um, that died from what we call exertional heat stroke. So it's heat stroke when you're um, participating in some high intensity activity like, you know, a sport. Um, you know, when he died, um, his wife, Kelsey, uh, provided funding to form an organization named after Corey called the Corey Stringer Institute. And the group is focused and they work with uh, state high school associations um, and a variety of other groups trying to improve heat safety policies. Um, Doug Casa is the one who's uh, directing the program is just doing a really amazing job um, guiding you know all sorts of organizations towards better safety standards. Yeah, and so you've been doing research uh, along with colleagues, I believe, at UGA and, and abroad 
uh, on this topic. Are, are there certain types of uh, seasons and meteorological conditions that, and I know I'm particularly interested with this because I have a son, a 13 year old son that plays football and they are starting next week training and what it's really probably the warmest time of the year here in Georgia. So tell us about the meteorological sort of warning signs and times of year that you are concerned about. Yes. So you're talking your son plays football. Football probably has the highest incidence of heat problems and, and heat deaths of any other sport. And part of it's the time of year it starts. You're right. It starts typically in the summer, which is the hottest and, and at least in the southeastern U.S., the most humid time of the year. So already you have you know difficult environmental conditions. Um, but with football players, it's a couple other things that make it really problematic. You know, they wear equipment, you know, helmets, the pads. Um, that stuff makes it harder for them to sweat and to cool off. Um, one of the studies we did actually with a, a group of uh, my graduate students and my colleague at UGA, um, Dr. John Knox, uh, we were looking at the circumstances of uh, football player deaths. And we found it wasn't just all football players. The ones who died were mainly linemen, like the really the biggest players on the field. A couple other kind of danger things that we start seeing in, from the study is uh, not only is it football, um, but it's early in the season when the players aren't uh, adjusted or what we call acclimatized to the heat. Um, that's a really high risk period. So there's linemen early in the season on you know really hot, humid days. It's extremely dangerous. Yeah. And I, I again, I keep an eye on this quite a bit. We're talking to Dr. Andy Grunstein because, you know, I, I'm that parent that already is worried about my son playing football just because football is a very dangerous sport. But then, you know, you have these people and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you hear this as someone that does this research. Oh, it's football. They'll be fine. I mean, we, they, they, they've been playing outside for a while. But I, I think people, uh, as you noted earlier, underestimate or undervalue just how deadly heat is. I mean, you see people running out in the middle of the day in 95 degree heat and very high in, in heat indices, if you will, and so forth, and you just kind of take it for granted. But yet they'll go inside if it starts lightning. And so this has been a messaging issue I've kind of harped on for years is we take we take evasive actions for lightning or tornadoes, but then we do things in heat we probably just shouldn't do. Speaking of that, can you talk to the listeners about the difference between, I think people are familiar with the heat index versus something that I think you prefer in your research, the wet bulb globe temperatures. So first talk about what the heat index is and why you feel wet bulb globe temperatures are a better indicator in these kinds of uh, circumstances. Oh, sure. So one of the key things to keep you know, people outdoors safe is kind of looking at how, how uh, you know, hot it is outside. And so we come up with these indices that combine the different kinds of things that can cause heat stress in people. Uh, the National Weather Service uses something called the heat index, and that's what most people are, are familiar with. Uh, the heat index accounts for temperature and humidity. So as it gets more humid, it feels more uncomfortable because it short circuits your cooling mechanism, you're sweating. Um, so a day that's hot and humid can feel more oppressive. Now, I don't like this for athletes because it makes assumptions that aren't always mentioned. It assume, and it's really designed for just sort of your you know, average person on the street. It's not, not really designed for uh, people who are workers or athletes um, or people in the military because it assumes that you're in the shade. So it takes the sun away. Um, it also assumes you're not wearing protective equipment or, or gear. And it also assumes you're not very active. And activity is really important. Um, you know, you probably know when 
you know, if you were just taking a walk on a day, it'll feel very different than if you go running and your, your body is generating a lot of heat. So that exertion part's really important. So the measure that is used a lot in sports, um, in the military, um, in you know, occupational safety is called the wet bulb globe temperature. And what this tries to account for is the different things that can affect heat stress. So it's actually a weighted average of three different temperature measurements. Air temperature gets hotter. It, it feels more uncomfortable. Um, it has, and that's called the dry bulb. It has uh, something that measures uh, kind of how effective your um, body's evaporative cooling, your sweating will work. Uh, it's called the wet bulb temperature. And then it has something that accounts for the uh, sunlight shining on you. And that's called the globe temperature. So it weights those three things um, to come up with a new index value. And it's an environmental index. So it doesn't make assumptions about your activity or your clothing. Usually what they'll do is they'll take that index and then combine it with a, a scale that will adjust it based on high activity. This is the wet bulb globe temperature that you should be working at. And this is the number of breaks. And when it gets even hotter, maybe you need to, if you're a football player, take off your pads and get more rest breaks. Um, so that's how it's typically done. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's something that, you know, hopefully we can get into the lexicon a bit more because people like you that look at this, you know, all of the time have clearly convinced me on why, why we need to be using the wet bulb globe temperature. I want to sort of, sort of leverage your expertise as a climatologist. And as you heard me mention earlier, Andy got his PhD at the University of Delaware in their climatology. He has a PhD in climatology. Uh, before I ask my question, Andy, is that, to your knowledge, the only, or I think it might be the first or only program that has a PhD in climatology? Yeah, actually, to my knowledge, I, I think it, I think it is the, or at least when I was there, it was the only program in the country with a PhD in climatology. It's actually a geography program, but for historical reasons, um, you know, one of the, uh, you know, pioneers in our field in climatology, um, you know, Dr. Russ Mather, um, I think kind of developed that specialty in, in, in climatology. Yeah, no, I, I, I wanted people to know that because, you know, when we have these sort of discussions about meteorology and climate and climatology and climate change, um, their expertise in climatology and meteorology are certainly linked and related, but there, there are some different aspects of both sciences. And I think it's important for people to know that because, because you're a meteorologist doesn't necessarily mean you're an expert climatologist and vice versa. So I wanted to make, make that known. Now, the National Climate Assessment, and IPCC and others have talked about the increase in sort of heat and sort of working conditions outside. Uh, we, we both live here in the south, southern U.S. where it can be fairly warm. And I think most of the climate projections suggest that uh, we're going to see an increasing number of, sort of uncomfortable days from, uh, I guess, from OSHA working standpoints. Uh, so from your perspective, your, the type of work that you do has real implications of climate change changes, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh you know, we, we've already looked at, we know there's just more frequent hot days, there's more heat waves. Uh, we did a study a few years ago where we looked at the wet bulb globe temperature and what it would look like in the middle of the 21st century and at the end. And we're getting a lot more days that are sufficiently hot, for instance, that people shouldn't be out there practicing during the hottest time of the day. What was interesting is that even states that are typically have pretty mild summers, you know, up north, you know, North Dakota, um, are going to get a lot more days in, you know, by the middle of the century and the end of the century that are oppressive and dangerous. 
And it, this, um, I guess I'm going a segue here, but we're actually looking at, a, a, I'm working with some colleagues at the Corey Stringer Institute, looking at vulnerability of state high school programs, combining their, their kind of heat policies and the current environmental conditions. And we're kind of keeping in the back of our mind with climate change. There's a lot of states that up north that are very unprepared as we start seeing more and more of these hot days. And, and speaking of preparation and policy, uh, kind of circle back to our discussion about heat and, and athletics. From your lens as an expert in this, who, who holds ultimate responsibility for making the right decisions about go, no go on practices, uh, whether kids should be exposed on certain heat days? I, I know, for example, that the, the athletic association that governs high schools here in our state, they use guidelines in part and informed by research from you and your colleagues. But um, Who's, is it ultimately the parents' responsibility, the GHSAs of the world and other similar organizations, the coaches, the trainers? Uh, how, how does that process of decision-making decision, decision making work or how should it work in your view? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think the first thing is it starts at the top that the organization needs to set up policies and guidelines. Um, just as an example, um, Georgia led the nation in the number of football deaths um, several years years ago. And in response to that, we conducted a study and based on the evidence, they came up with a new policy in 2012. And since that policy was put in place, there's not been a single death while that policy has been in effect. So policies are really important for providing guidance, you know, and the guidance in terms of, you know, giving players time to adjust to heat. Um, how do you adjust practices when it gets really hot outside? What do you do if there's an emergency and someone has heat stroke? Um, those kinds of decisions are critical at the collegiate and the professional levels. Um, I think the next step is to really get these into, um, you know, the, for youth athletes, because a lot of times you're dealing with a, a mom or a dad who's coaching a team and they don't have a background in, you know, athletic training um, or physiology. So I think in those cases, it's really important to have the organization provide them guidelines and guidance in, in what they need to do. So if on a given day, it's a certain you know, temperature or if they're using wet bulb globe temperature, if it's a certain value, then that gives them guidance in whether they should stop the practice or adjust when they're practicing or how intense they should be practicing. So I, I think a lot of this is they need that good policy to provide guidance for people. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I have the, the uh, pleasure of speaking with my colleague from the University of Georgia, Dr. Andy Grunstein, about health-related issues, particularly heat and climate and weather. But I want to pivot now to something that when you hear it, it's going to be very counterintuitive to you. I mean, thunderstorm asthma. 
this is something that I think Dr. Grunstein has been pioneering in this uh, in in this country at least. There's been quite a bit of work in uh, I think parts of Europe and in Australia on this concept that asthma sufferers actually. Uh, actually may actually have higher incident of hospitalization rates. There was even a very high profile case of many deaths in Australia in recent years from thunderstorm related asthma. So Andy, I, 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 know, that, I know that we have um, heard of this in the scientific field, but this may be something that's new to many of the Weather Geeks listeners. And I, I, I've, I've had the pleasure of being involved with you in some of this research. So give everyone a 101 on what the heck thunderstorm asthma is. Sure. I, it's really fascinating. And just to give a little background, I, I stumbled upon it while I was teaching a, a graduate seminar on applied climatology. And I found this article that talked about how thunderstorms could lead to asthma. And it, at the time, it seemed very counterintuitive to me because I always thought that when it rained, it would wash out the pollens and it should actually improve things for people. Um, but as I've been doing this study, I've been finding that you know, thunderstorms can lead to increases in asthma. And the, one of the kind of the primary ways that people are thinking about this, it, and it works mostly with grass pollen, but also with uh, fungal spores. The idea here is that the thunderstorm will, will draw up grass pollen into the cloud. And in the high humidity cloud, um, the grass pollens will rupture, releasing very small particles. And then the downdraft from the thunderstorm will spread these particles around. And people that have pollen allergies, especially say the grass pollen, will inhale these very small particles. Um, because they're small, they can get deep into your lungs and cause an allergic reaction. And the interesting thing is that when you start looking at who gets medical attention, the people that are have really serious asthma, they're not the ones going to the hospital because they already know what to do. They, they have their medication for that. It's the people that rarely have asthma or mild asthma that just are caught very unsurprised. And I can't imagine how frightening it's got to be um, to all of a sudden suffer an asthma attack. Um, probably the worst case uh, uh, that we've seen is, was in Australia in 2016, where you know, eight people died and thousands of people flooded the emergency rooms. Um, they overwhelmed their, um, they call it the triple zero system, their 911 system in Australia. People were put on hold. Could you imagine calling 911 being put on hold? Uh, so these things have the potential to cause these widespread health outcomes. Uh, we haven't seen that in the United States, though we, have, uh, we did a study in Atlanta that showed that there is a relationship in the U.S. too. Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating. That's why I've, uh, you know, you played a, playing a small role just learning from you and others about this. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think uh, the Weather Geeks producers wanted wanted me to ask you in in the notes that they provided is, can these be predicted? These outbreaks, and I and I, I'm I'm smiling as I ask this because I know this is kind of where you're moving the research to, and it, even in some things that we've been recently doing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, Thunderstorm asthma is really complicated because it, and it's fascinating because it combines like different components. So you've got the, the pollen component, you've got the weather component with the thunderstorms, and then you've got the people component. And all these pieces have to fit together for a thunderstorm asthma epidemic to occur. Um, so we're actually looking at that right now, trying to piece together what would make something an epidemic. You know, how do all these pieces come together? Um, in the past, they tried to come up with models, and there's too many false alarms. And, you know, in Georgia, we get 50 or so thunderstorm days a year. So 
you know, you constantly get these warnings. Uh, people may not be listening as much. Um, in Australia, they've developed one after that 2016 event. They developed one that uh, a court incorporates, you know, um, you know, if it's a high pollen day, um, they're looking at thunderstorms um, with strong gusts, and they're currently studying to see how effective it is, sort of look at the false alarm ratio. So that's work they're currently studying, but they've implemented it in the state of Victoria right now. So our ultimate goal, though, is to really um, add that people component in there. My idea or our idea that, you know, we're working on is that we probably need, you know, widespread thunderstorms. So multi-cell thunderstorms, um, high pollen day, and we need people to be exposed outside. So if this occurred at two in the morning, people aren't really out. But if it occurs during a peak time of the day where people are out and about, uh, you know, our idea is that that's going to greatly increase the exposure and make the thunderstorm asthma a lot worse. So that's the interesting thing. It's not just the weather part of things. You got to look at the people thing too. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's a really interesting sort of direction that you're taking this research. Um, we, we were talking about climate change earlier and with the well, climate change warming effects or longer growing in pollen seasons, seasons, do you see any implications for thunderstorm asthma as we shift the climate? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're going to have longer uh, growing seasons, so you might have a longer period of time with pollen. I've you know, seen some studies where there's um, maybe increasing strength of thunderstorms that could potentially um, lead to stronger downdraft winds that, that might create more conducive conditions. So I could see this continuing to be a, a problem in the future. Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Andy Grunstein, and we're unfortunately running out of time here. And Dr. Grunstein's, uh, again, the, a professor at the University of Georgia in the Department of Geography and the Atmospheric Sciences Program as well. He's also the graduate coordinator of our program at the University of Georgia. So, Andy, last question. What, what advice do you, would you give to someone that's applying for a graduate program generally or in a geography or atmospheric or climate-focused program? Any, any sort of nuggets from your experience as a student and as a professor? Yeah, I, I think the big thing, and this is what I, I tell my students or, you know, other people that are looking at programs, that I think the key is to find the right program. And that means doing your homework, talk to people in the program, see if your interests are a good fit, um, see if you, you feel comfortable with, uh, you know, grad programs, you work with a major advisor, you know, see if that person is someone you, you connect well with, um, you know, see if the location is somewhere you'd be happy with. Um, so I think a lot of it's some homework and it's not always like the top program. I know we always look at the top programs, which is important, but I think it's finding the right program is the most important thing. Oh, I agree with that. And advice I'm certainly giving my, my daughter right now as she's exploring colleges as a junior in high school. And that's where we have to end it. But before we do, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Kaylee Newberry. She's a young Skyworn spotter from Tennessee. What makes her a geek, she asks, or we ask, and the answer is this, her desire to learn how and why the weather does what it does on a daily basis. I always had that question too, Kaylee. So if you or someone you know is a deserving candidate for the Geek of the Week, be sure to follow our social media pages. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, it's been great. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. You got a double dog adventure today from uni two University of Georgia professors. Hey, keep listening and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks.